Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. Quickly turning to Genesis chapter 23. I'm just going to read two verses, uh, verse 16 and 18. 23, 16, and 18. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephron, and Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver, which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth. Four hundred shekels of silver, current money with the merchant. And the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, and which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was therein, and all the trees that were in the field that were in all the borders round about were made sure unto Abraham for a possession. Somebody say, for a possession. In the presence of the children of Heth before all that went in at the gates of the city. Abraham had several promises given to him Throughout the course of his lifetime. But as he stood there that day and looked at the children of Heth. There was some back and forth that began to happen. And they tried to just say, Abraham, why don't you just come in and use this land. Just bury your dead here. But Abraham looked back at them and said, "I I don't think you understand. My promise isn't to use this land. My promise is to possess this land. I'm not going to spend long tonight, but I just want to spend a few moments helping somebody. I want to preach to you tonight. Hold on to the promise. Hold on to the promise. Would you set your Bibles down and can we welcome the Lord into this place? and an unction in this house tonight in the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus if you're going to hold on to the promise would you clap your hands unto the Lord and you may be seated in the name of Jesus we took our first reading tonight from the book of Acts and the beginning of Acts is a very familiar portion of scripture to the apostolic church We are very familiar with Acts chapter 2 when the day of Pentecost was fully come and they were all in one place and in one accord and suddenly came the promise. But leading up to this chapter 2 is a fascinating narrative. You see in Mark chapter 16 we find that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James were the first To walk into the garden. And and you know what they found? They found an empty tomb. And they found that it was happening exactly like he said it was going to happen. This was the third day and the tomb was empty. The Bible goes on to tell us that Jesus went to show himself to Peter. And to the disciples with many infallible proofs. He showed himself to them. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us 
that after Jesus appeared to the disciples and to Peter, that he appeared to over 500 brethren at once. And there's no tricks in the Greek here. When it says brethren, the word literally means a brother, especially a fellow Christian. So these people that Jesus was showing himself to, the resurrected Jesus was standing before not just a group of strangers, not just a random group of people, but before believers. And it's to this group of people that Jesus is about to speak in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. Now now you have to understand something. These were believers So they understood that this Jesus who was about to speak to them was the same God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. The God who speaks and mountains tremble under the majesty of His voice. The God who speaks and the universe begins to align itself in order. The God who spoke let their be light, and in a place that had never experienced light, a place that only knew darkness and only knew chaos, for the first time experienced light. Why? Because the Word of God spoke it. See, there is a principle that can be found in the very first chapter of the Bible. And it's a principle that we have to understand and get a hold of if we want to understand anything else. That happens. And it's a simple concept. That when God speaks. It happens. There are no questions. There are no exceptions. When the word of God comes forth. It's going to happen. Exactly the way. That he said. It was going to happen. And now this this same God. who, Who spoke the universe into existence the same God who speaks and everything falls into line stands before this group of believers and prepares to speak he looks at them and he says I need you to tarry in Jerusalem don't leave Jerusalem but wait for the promise because not many days from now there's something that's going to show up that you've never experienced before if you will but wait for the promise you are going to experience something that doesn't come from this earth but you're going to have to wait for the promise can you imagine how that would how that would have gone over if If Jesus walked into this place today and said those exact same words, he comes up and says, okay, here's what's going to happen, guys. Something incredible is on its way, but you're just going to have to wait for it. Peter reans over and elbows Andrew and says, did did he say when that that promise was coming? No, I I don't think he did. Did he give us a a tracking number for that promise? I, I might have hey, hey Jesus, is this coming on Prime or how's this coming? Come on now. We, we live in an Amazon Prime generation and, and I, I'm the worst at it. As soon as I hit purchase on that little app, I'm already looking out my front door. I'm trying to find that UPS truck. Where's he at? But Jesus, 
didn't provide these men with a tracking number. He didn't provide them with an estimated due date. He just said, you're going to have to wait for the promise. And he, he gives this command. He says, don't, don't leave Jerusalem, but just if you will just wait for the promise, something incredible is going to come. So these, these men and these disciples, they, they start to journey from the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended, and they start making their way to the upper room. And the Bible doesn't give us a, a lot of detail about the actual journey. But all we know is that Jesus appeared to over 500 brethren. There were over 500 brethren that heard the promise of the Lord. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 12 that Jerusalem was just a Sabbath day's journey away. This wasn't a very far distance. To walk it really wouldn't take you all that long. But something begins to happen on this journey to the upper room. Something begins to move through this rank of believers that starts to unsettle some things. Can I, can I say it like this? Somewhere along the journey, a father realized that he was supposed to be working overtime that night. So he, he didn't really have time for an impromptu prayer meeting. So he, he kind of drifted away from the crowd. Somewhere in the crowd, a, a young mother realized, you know, the, the feast of first weeks is coming up in about 10 days. I, their family's going to be coming over. I've got to start getting the house ready. I don't really know if I have time for an impromptu prayer meeting right now. So she begins to drift away from the crowd. Something happened and doubt started entering the minds of those making the journey. But we find that by verse 13 that they make their way to the upper room and we know that a prayer meeting breaks out. Now remember they, they didn't have a due date. They didn't have a tracking number. All they had was a place and a promise. Now, I don't know if, if you've ever been to a, a prayer meeting without uh, an end time on it. But, but I've been to a couple and it, it always starts out strong. The prayer, even here, prayer meetings, they go strong. But you, you give it till about 10 minutes till 8 o'clock and we start looking over for pastor. Is, is he going to dismiss us yet? It starts getting a little quieter. Uh -huh. I wish the choir would come back up here. <laughs> it starts getting a little quieter, but, but every once in a while, something gets a hold of Pastor. And he, he doesn't just dismiss at 10 minutes to late. Yeah. And we get to looking, and he's still over there in the corner praying. Right. And we start looking over at Bishop. Right. You see this? Are you gonna, can you dismiss us now? Pastor, Pastor's still praying. Bishop's not dismissing us. Look over Bishop Bingham. Is he going to dismiss us? No one's dismissing us. And you'll see this, this slow little trickle begin to happen. And I can't help but imagine that it is the same way in the upper room. That it started out with a fire and with a fervency. There were people who believed that the promise was on its way. But one day in the praying and there was no promise yet. They get two days into the upper room. They start looking around and promise hasn't shown up yet. Day three, they're, they're looking around waiting for the promise, but it, it hasn't showed up yet. 
And I don't know what happens when you read through the scripture, but when I start reading, my mind just starts going crazy. And I can almost picture what's going on. I can see the disciples. I can see them praying and tarrying and waiting for the promise. But for every one person that I see holding on to that promise, I see two more pack up their bags and walk out the back door giving up that the promise is going to happen. And I don't have any Bible for this, but I like to think that Peter was, had stationed himself by the back door. So that every person who wanted to get up and walk out, that every person who wanted to give up on the promise had to look one more person in the eyes who was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the promise is going to come. They had to pass one more person who would say, don't give up on the promise yet. You can't give up now. It hasn't come yet. 500 believers started the journey towards the upper room. But somewhere along the line, we read the scripture where Peter stands up to address those who are still in the upper room. And the Bible says that those that were numbered with him were about 120. How on earth did we go from 500... People who literally saw the resurrected Jesus. This wasn't just hearsay. Jesus himself stood before them and said, If you will wait, the promise will come. But now we've gone from 500 people waiting for the promise to just 120. See, day four comes and goes. Day five comes and goes. Day six, the promise still hasn't came. You know, I know six days doesn't really sound like that long of a time. But when you're the one in a season of waiting, when you're the one that's looking around and saying, God, where are you? God, I thought you said your promise was going to come. God, I thought you told me that if I would wait here, that the promise, that my deliverance, that my breakthrough, that my healing, I thought you told me it was going to come. You know, six days doesn't sound like a very long time until you're the one in the middle of the season of waiting and you can't see how God's going to work it out. But day seven, it comes and it goes. Day eight comes and goes and still no promise. Day nine comes. And I can just imagine one of those men looking around and shaking his head, picking up his bags and walking towards the back door. And Peter grabs him by the arm and says, where are you going, brother? You, you, you can't give up now. Well, what if it comes tomorrow? Well, what if the promise shows up Tomorrow, you can't give up now. But I can just imagine that man looking back at Peter, saying, Peter, I've been praying. Peter, you've, you've seen me every service. I've been here Sunday morning. I've been here Sunday night. I was here on Wednesday. I was here at prayer meeting. You've seen me. I've been here. But Peter, if the promise was coming, surely it would have happened by now. Peter, if the promise was really on its way, surely it would have happened. By Peter, how long are you going to waste your time waiting 
on a promise that's just not going to show up. You see, there's something about Peter that that man didn't quite understand. See, Peter was there in Matthew chapter 8 when the leper came up to Jesus and he stretched out his hand and Peter saw the rotten flesh just falling off his hand white as snow. And Peter just sat there and watched, okay, well, what's going to happen here? And Peter watched as that leper stuck out his hand towards Jesus. And he watched Jesus look towards that man and say, Be thou cleansed. And immediately his hand was made whole. You see, Peter was there in Mark chapter 4 when the waves started rocking up against the boat. And the disciples started getting afraid. And, and they were looking at the storm. And they're saying, there's no way we're going to make it out of this one. And, and they come and they wake up Jesus. Say, why are you sleeping? Do, do you not even care? We are about to die. And, and can, can I tell you that even when the storm looks like it's going to wipe you out, it hasn't even phased the master. Even when the storm looks like it's going to be your last day. When it looks like there is no further hope. The master isn't even phased. And Peter was there as Jesus woke up from that little cot. And walked to the deck of that ship. And he stretched forth his hand. And he said peace. Be still. And Peter watched as even chaos itself, as night, as the storm obeyed the voice of the master. See, Peter was there in John chapter 11. And he watched the tears roll off the face of Jesus. And he watched Jesus mourn for Lazarus. And he watched as all those who were gathered around said, Oh, surely how he loved him. There were some people who thought it was over. Who thought there wasn't. They said, Jesus, if if you would have showed up just a little earlier, maybe something could have been done, but it's too late now. And Peter watched as Jesus said, Get that stone out of my way. And he watched as Jesus stood before that tomb and he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And even death itself had to let go of its hold when Jesus speaks. You see, Peter had something settled in his spirit before he ever got into the upper room, before he ever got into the season of doubt Can I tell somebody that day nine in the upper room isn't a good time to be trying to figure out if you really believe the promise? When you're in the middle of your season of waiting, when you're looking around and you just can't see how God's going to bring this all together, when you're looking around saying, oh God, how how is this going to work? That's not a good time to start debating whether the word is settled. But before Peter ever stood in an upper room, before he ever got in a season of waiting, and before he ever got into the middle of the trial, Peter had something settled down in his spirit. And it was that if God said it was...
is going to happen. I believe it's going to happen. You've come too late to convince me that the promise isn't going to come. You've come too late to tell me my breakthrough is not on its way. You've come too late to tell me my healing is not on its way. I believe that if God said it, it will happen. And it's going to happen just like he said it will happen. It wasn't a question in Peter's mind. It was settled in his spirit. Pastor said it just a few weeks ago. Say, you know what's better than believing something? It's knowing something. Peter just didn't profess to believe that the promise was on his way. But he knew deep down in his spirit that it was going to happen just like God said. It would happen. But we know that 380 still walked out of the upper room. Why? Why could people just give up? I mean, you, are, you just saw Jesus manifest in flesh now. See, there were some people... In that upper room that even though they professed to believe the promise, they, they didn't really believe the promise. See, belief isn't just something that you profess with your lips, but it's an action. It's an assurance. It's a settling in your spirit that I know it's going to happen. See, there were some people in the upper room who got comfortable being around the promise. But they hadn't yet learned to hold on to the promise for themselves. I, I, want, I want to help somebody tonight. There's, there is a difference between being around the promise and holding on to the promise. See, when it's day nine in the upper room and you're looking around and you don't know how it's all going to work out. If you're holding on to the promise, it doesn't matter how long it's going to take. It doesn't matter if you don't know how it's going to happen. You've already settled it in your spirit that it's going to happen and you're going to hold on to the promise. But when you just become comfortable being around the promise, it's a whole different story. Because when day nine comes in the upper room and you're looking around and, and you don't see how it's going to happen. When you just get comfortable coming to service after service. And if the music's just right, your, your faith is high. But the moment that it requires something deeper. The moment that it's going to require a sacrifice. The moment where it, it, it's going to require an investment past what's comfortable it's going to get a little bit harder to hold on. And when day nine comes and you're looking around, it's going to be easier just to slip out the back doors and say, it was nice for a while, but I don't know if I can just invest that much in it right now. Surely if the promise was going to come, it would have happened by now. You've got to understand tonight that it's not enough to just be 
around the promise. It's not enough to just be in the atmosphere of promise, but you have to hold onto the promise. Now, it's easy to get comfortable being around people holding on to the promise. But the question at the end of the day is going to be, did you hold on? Did you run the race till it was finished? We find in Genesis this incredible picture that, that completely demonstrates the difference between someone who holds on to the promise and someone who is just comfortable being around the promise. We find it, the first time we, f- we find mention of Abraham and Lot is in Genesis chapter 11. We find that Terah takes Abram and Sarai and Lot and they begin to journey from Ur of the Chaldees and they start to head towards Canaan. And Genesis chapter 12 opens up with something very interesting. It says, now the Lord had said unto Abram. It doesn't say that the Lord began to say. But the scripture says, now the Lord had said unto Abram. That tells me that when Abram started hearing from God, when the promise of God first came to Abram, he was still back at his father's house. He was still back in a land where he could never reach the promise. And we find at the end of Genesis chapter 11 that Terah is on the move, the father of Abram. Uh, This tells me that there was some kind of conversation that happened when God began to speak to Abram, that Abram went to his father, he went to Terah and and said, you know... I know you're not quite sure about this one God thing yet. Tradition tells us that Abram's father actually sold idols for a living. And and he goes to his father and says, You know, I, I know you're not completely sure about this whole thing yet. But I am telling you that God spoke to me. And he said there is a promise coming, but we can't get it here. And the Bible says that Terah, Abram, Sarai, and Lot began to journey towards Canaan. You see, there was something alluring about the promise. There was something intriguing. There was something enough to uproot an entire family. And this wasn't just a little journey, but it uprooted their entire family and they began to head towards Canaan. And we find that the whole entourage doesn't quite make it. They stop in Haran and Terah dies. And we find throughout Genesis chapter 12 that Abram and Lot continue on the journey. Yeah. There was something alluring about this promise. Lot said, I know our father's dead. I know we're not where we used to be, but, but I'm intrigued about this promise. I've heard... What you said is on its way. I've heard of what God can do in a power-packed church service. I've heard what God can do among His children. And I'm intrigued about this promise. So Abram and Lot keep journeying. They're looking. They don't know where they're going. God just said, you're going to journey to a land that I will show you. And in Genesis chapter 12, we find that they come to Shechem. 
And the Lord appeared unto Abram in Shechem. He said, unto thy seed will I give this land. See, up until this point, it was just, if you will go towards this direction, I will show you the land. They had just been journeying. And I don't think this was over the span of just a few days. This had been some time now. They had been journeying. They went all the way from Ur of the Chaldees, all the way up to Haran, all the way over to Shechem. And now the Lord says, this is the land that is your promise. And immediately after God says, this is the land that's going to be your promise, the Bible says, and there was a famine in the land. Isn't that just the way it works sometimes? That just when you think you've arrived to the promised destination, you look around and say, this doesn't quite look how I thought it was going to look. This isn't, isn't quite how I expected the promise. I, I can see just Lot scratching his head a little bit. Say, you know, Abram, you talked this up pretty good. Ah, this doesn't quite match the description that you gave me. You know, I wasn't there and I, I don't really know how the conversation went, but I remember the first date I took this pretty little woman on over here on the front row. And I, had, I had this friend, understand me, I'm not saying this friend was the voice of God. Because <laughs> if you knew this friend, you would know he was not the voice of God. <laughs> but but I, I came to him, I was, I was saying, hey man, I, you know, I've got this cute little girl I'm going to take out this weekend. I, I need a good restaurant to go to. He said, man, I've got the perfect place. So I, I know where you need to go. And he wrote it down. I was like, I never heard of that place. But sure, we'll try it. So, so we get in the car and, and we're heading. And she goes, well, you know, where, where are we going? I was like, oh, we're going to this little restaurant. She goes, have you been there before? No. But, but I promise it's going to be good when we get there. And when we got there, <laughs> there was a little more frustration and disappointment than there was promise fulfillment. We left that little restaurant with three to-go boxes. None of those to-go boxes were ever eaten. They were promptly thrown in the trash. But you can imagine how that conversation went. Go with Jordan, they said. It's going to be fun, they said. You want to have good food, they said. It's going to be a good time, they said. And I can just imagine that's kind of how this conversation is going between Lot and Abram. Abram, you said that this was a promised land. This looks more like famine land to me. And Lot's, he's getting a little frustrated at this point. And there's something that, that begins to shake in Abram. See, you know, God told me there's going to be a promise, but it doesn't really look like it's panning out how I thought it was going to pan out. So the Bible says that they journeyed down to Egypt to escape the famine. And while he's in Egypt, now remember... The promise that God gave to Abram while he's back in Ur of the Chaldees was, Abram, I'm going to bless those that bless you. And I'm going to curse those that curse you. There was a protection that came with the promise. But the moment that Abram steps into Egypt, he looks at his wife and says, okay, now listen. When they see you, they're going to kill me so they can take you. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to tell them that you're my sister, and then maybe I will escape out of this alive. 
Now that doesn't sound to me like a man who's convinced of the promise. It doesn't sound to me like that's a man who knows without a shadow of a doubt that the hand of protection of God is on him. So they go into Egypt and he lies to Pharaoh. And we know what happens. God starts smiting the house of Pharaoh and he figures out what's going on and they kick him out of Egypt. So now they've gone to the promised land. There's a famine. They've gone to Egypt where there was food. And they were promptly kicked out of Egypt. And now Lot's got a whole lot more questions than he's got answers. And I'm not really surprised at all as we begin to read through chapter 13 that the Bible says there was tension between Lot and Abram. Lot's looking at Abram saying, you know, we've been doing this for a while now, okay? I've, I've been sticking around with you. I've been holding on to this promise, and I've been, it's been comfortable, right? It's not always been perfect, but I've been okay. But I'm just, if God was really going to bless you like he said you were going to be blessed, surely it would have happened by now. So Abram looks at Lot, and he says, listen, we're brothers. The land's before you. Wherever you want to go, if you want to go, you can go. And the Bible says that Lot turned and began to walk eastward. Now, I'm no expert in biblical cartography, okay? But when you begin to look at where they were and where he began to go, the only way for Lot to get to the plains of Jordan was to turn his back on the promised land. The Midrash, in the Jewish tradition, tells us that when Lot turned his back on Abram, that he said within himself, I want neither Abram nor his God. He got fed up with hanging around the promise. He got fed up with holding on to something that he really didn't believe was going to happen. So while Abram has pitched his tent in Canaan, while Abram is still dwelling in the promised land, Lot turns his back and it says that he journeys east and he pitches his tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah. So I know this much about the map at that time. If if this is all the promised land, here's Lot, and here's where he's facing. He's completely and utterly turned his back on Abram, on God, and on the promise. So I don't want anything to do with Abram. I don't want anything to do with God. I don't. As a matter of fact, the Midrash says that he said in his heart, "I don't want anything to do with Abram's God." And he completely turns his back on the promised land. And it's understandable to, to think that Abram's a little shaken at this point. He's been waiting on the promise to come. God said if you will leave this land, you're going to have a promise. He's been journeying. He's been waiting. But now all he's seen is famine. All he's seen is hardship. And now his brother, his beloved, has turned his back on him. And he has walked off. 
And the Bible says immediately after Lot left Abram that God reassured Abram of the promise. And at this point, Abram's doing everything he can to hold on to that promise. But can I tell you that he's flesh and blood just like we are flesh and blood. And he's trying with everything that he can to hold on to the promise. He's trying with everything that he can to believe God. But God keeps giving him this promise. He keeps saying, Abram, you're going to be a father of many nations. You're going to have children, Abram. But he's looking around saying, God, I don't have any children. God keeps saying, Abram, you're going to possess this land. But Abram's looking around saying, God, all I've got is a couple tents. I don't have any land. But Abram's trying to hold on to the promise. And as time goes on, and we continue to read the story, we find that Abram starts to get impatient. And he tries to force the promise. He goes into Hagar and says, you know, this isn't really how I thought it was going to work, but, but, but I think we just need to try and do something to make this happen. See, Abram's trying to hold on to the promise, but there's something inside of him that is faltering. There's something inside of him that is questioning. And we find in Genesis 17 that God establishes a covenant with Abram and he changes his name to Abraham. And guess what he says? The same thing he's been saying the whole time. He says, Abram, Abraham, you're going to have children. Abraham, you're going to possess this land. Abraham, nothing has changed. The promise hasn't changed. It's still on its way. But even after, even after he enters into covenant with God... Just a couple chapters later, he's still struggling. And we know he's still struggling because he goes before Abimelech and he does the same thing he did when he was in Egypt. God promised, I'm going to be a protection. God promised him, I'm going to protect you. He's entered into covenant with God. He's been born again. He's been baptized in the name of Jesus. Are you telling me that you can be coming to church and that you can be baptized? Are you telling me that you can be in the covenant and still have doubts? Absolutely. And now we find Abraham who's trying so hard to hold on to this promise. He's in the same mess that he was back in chapter 12 in Egypt. He goes into this land and he looks at his wife and says, Sarah, now listen. We've, we've gone through this before, okay? When they look at me, they're going to look at you. And when they look at you, they're going to kill me so they can have you. Sarah's like, oh God, here we go again. Abram's, Abram's trying to hold on to the promise. But there's something in him that's still saying, well, maybe I need to, I need to make this happen. Maybe there's something that I need to do to protect myself. You know, it's easy to, to look at Abram, look at Abraham, and look at it like a Sunday school lesson. And we talk about Father Abraham. We talk about his faith. We talk about how great of a man of God he was. Can I tell you, he was still flesh and blood. Yes, Abraham had faith, but he was still flesh and blood. Yes, when you look 
at our pastor and you look at our bishop, you see great men of faith. But can I tell you, there's still flesh and blood. And there are times when you wake up in the morning and you're saying, God, I'm trying to believe you. I'm trying to trust in you. But I just don't see how you're going to make this happen. See, it's not always easy to believe in the promise. It's not always easy to sacrifice everything, to keep going when it doesn't look like you should keep going. It's not always easy to keep holding on to something that you've been waiting a long, long time for. And Abraham, in chapter 20, is still not quite sure of what's going on. But there is a turning point in the life of Abraham. When we get to chapter 21, there is something that happens that changes Abraham forever. You see, the Abraham we read in Scripture after chapter 21 is not the same Abraham that we saw before chapter 21 Brother Tyler, can you put uh, Genesis chapter 21 and verse 1 up on the screen for me? See, it's been a long time. Abraham's trying to believe the promise. God keeps saying he's going to give him children. God keeps saying you're going to possess the land. And he's trying to hold on. Everything he has, he's trying. But then we get to chapter 21. And we find that the Lord visited Sarah. What's that say? As he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. Give me the next verse. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. See, there's something that happens in Genesis 21 Abram's been trying to hold on. He's saying, God, I know you're, you said you're going to give me a child, but I haven't seen it yet. I'm trying to believe that if you said it, it's going to happen. I'm trying to believe, but there's something that happens when Abraham begins to hold that little baby. When Abraham looks into the eyes of Isaac, he can look at his wife Sarah and said, we've been waiting a really long time for this moment. You know, there were days when we didn't know if it was going to happen. There was a season where we weren't really sure if the promise was going to come. But there was something that happened in the spirit of Abraham and it was settled that if God spoke it, it was going to happen. The faith of Abraham changed in an instant when he could look and say, I surely believe that God speaks and it happens. I know I've had my doubts. I know I've had my questions. But I can tell you with all, without a shadow of a doubt that when God speaks, it's going to happen. There's something that begins to transition in the faith of Abraham in this moment. He goes from faith as substance to faith as evidence. But Tyler, can you throw up Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 for me? This is known as the faith 
Hall of Fame. And it opens like this. Now faith, somebody say now faith, is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now you can have your own thoughts on this and if you disagree with what I'm about to say, that's okay. You can buy me a shake after the service. I'd love that. But can I help somebody tonight with what the Lord started to move in my spirit as I began to read this chapter and as I began to study this verse. You see, there are two elements to faith. There is faith as substance, and then there is faith as evidence. You know, I don't think I'm quite qualified to break it down Gerber style, but I'm going to try and break it down the best I can. See, faith... As substance is the kind of faith that keeps you going to the house of God when everything is comfortable. As long as it doesn't cost me too much, I'll make going to the house of God a priority in my life. As long as I don't have to invest too much. As long as I don't have an opportunity to work that night. or As long as I don't have something else come up that I need to do. I will go to the house of God. See, that's faith as substance. It's enough of your substance to get you through when everything is going okay. But there's a whole nother dimension of faith. And that is faith as evidence. And that's the kind of faith that says, you know, we've been waiting for a long time. You know, we've been looking around trying to figure out how it's going to happen and I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know when the breakthrough is going to happen. I don't know when the healing is going to happen. And when people start asking questions, well, well, how do you even know it's going to happen? You can look back at them and say, the only evidence that I need is that God spoke it and I believe that when he spoke it, it was going to happen. You see, in this very moment, Abraham's faith goes from just a substance kind of faith and it goes to an evidence kind of faith. Abraham is the only person mentioned in the Faith Hall of Fame twice. The first time he comes up, Brother Tyler, can you find this for me? I believe it's Hebrews 11 and 7. The first time that Abraham is mentioned... In the faith hall of fame. Give me one more. Maybe it's verse 9. It says that by faith. Thank you. By faith Abraham. When he was called to go out into a place. Which he should have to receive. For an inheritance. Obeyed. And he went out not knowing whether he went. It takes faith to step out. It does. It takes a measure of faith to step out and say, I don't really know where I'm going, but I'm going to trust anyway. Give me the next verse. Verse 9. By faith he sojourned. Everybody say sojourned. In the land of promise as in a strange country. This word sojourned literally means to dwell around a place. But it has implications that you are still a foreigner in that place. See, it takes a measure of faith to be around the promise. But the next time that Abraham's name is mentioned, he's not just sojourning. He's not just 
living around the promise. But by the time we get to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises. But he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from whence also he received him in a figure you see it's a whole different dimension of faith when you can settle in your spirit that if God said it's going to happen it's going to happen the first time Abraham is mentioned in the faith hall of fame he is mentioned among those who died not having yet received the promise but the second time he is mentioned it says he is mentioned among the list of those who by their faith subdued kingdoms by their faith received the promises you see there is something that happens when you say I'm not comfortable just being around the promise I don't just want to come into the atmosphere of promise but I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that if God said it's going to happen I believe that breakthrough is going to happen I believe that revival is going to happen but but you've got to get it settled in your spirit that you're going to hold on to the promise. When Abraham saw that God did just as he said he would, he realized that when God speaks, it happens. Now, I don't think there was a single person on the face of the earth after that point that could have convinced Abraham that the promise wasn't going to happen. I don't think after this moment there was one person on the face of the earth that could convince Abraham that nothing was going to happen. Well, Sister Diaz, I don't believe that there is one person on the face of this earth that could convince you that God isn't a healer. Because you've seen him do it. You, how, long, how long did you battle with that? Was it five years? Five years looking around saying, God, I don't know what you're doing. I thought you said you were a healer. But when I was here, when you came up to this altar, and when the Spirit of God began to fall in this house, and there was a realization of healing power, and this whole church realized from you holding on to the promise that if God said He's a healer, I still believe that He's a healer. An entire congregation got to witness because one person said, I'm not going to let go of the promise my Bible said that he's a healer and I believe that he's still a healer. My Bible said he's a deliverer and I still believe that he is a deliverer. My God, I feel him coming into this place right now. Well, Sister June, how long have you been with us now? Seven months, eight months? Something like that? Now, I don't think there's one person on the face of this earth that could convince that could convince you that God's not a waymaker, that God's not a deliverer, 
because I watched him. And when we baptized you in the name of Jesus, I watched a change start to happen in your life. And I watched as God started moving things that at one time we didn't know if they were going to be moved. But can I remind you tonight that when Peter stood up, he said, the promise is unto you. And I believe that you're going to be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost in the name of Jesus. Why? Because God said it was going to happen. And I just have enough faith in this place to believe that if he said you will receive the Holy Ghost evidence by speaking in tongues, it's going to happen. I just have enough faith to believe that if somebody will just hold on to the promise. I'm hurrying to a close and my music wants to come. Something has fundamentally changed in Abraham. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that if God said it's going to happen, it will. But we find after Abraham comes back from the mountain, after the binding of Isaac, he comes and Sarah, his wife, dies. This isn't a particularly joyous time for Abraham. It's a dark time. It's a time of sorrow. And Abraham's looking around. And he's saying, you know, God gave me two very distinct promises. He said I was going to have children. I have one one child now by Sarah. But he also said he was going to let me possess this land. And I still don't possess any land. So we find in Genesis chapter 23 that Sarah is now dead. And Abraham comes to the sons of Heth. Genesis 23 and verse 3. And Abraham stood up before his dead and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying Place with you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the children of Heth, they start to go back and forth with him. And at first, it seems like they just want to give him the land. They seem very generous. They keep saying over and over, You don't have to give us any money. Just come and bury your dead. And it's okay. You can just come and you can use the land. You can bury your dead. Verse 6. They say, hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince. This is the sons of Heth talking to Abraham. In in the choice of our sepulchres, bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulcher, that thou mayest bury thy dead. See, what what they were saying, it was masked in this generosity. But they knew full and well that Abraham was a stranger. He was a sojourner. He didn't have any legal right to the land. So while, yes, it seems to be a nice gesture to say, you can use one of our burial plots to bury your dead, Abraham looked back at them and said, no, you don't understand. My promise isn't that I'm going to get to use this land. 
You don't understand my promise isn't that I'm just going to be around this land. But my promise from God is that I'm going to possess this land. And suddenly the whole narrative flips. And they say, okay, well, you can buy it from us. And Rabbi Sachs, he, he points out that the amount they asked him for was just an absurd amount. It was an overinflated price. It was just a small field with one little grave plot. It was not worth the price they were asking. But Abraham looked back at them and said, that's okay. I realize that if I want to possess this land, I'm going to have to invest in it. He said, I understand that if I want to see the promise fulfilled, if I want to see before I die me get my hands on this promise, I'm going to have to invest a little bit. It doesn't matter what it's going to cost me. It doesn't matter what I have to sacrifice. It doesn't matter if I have to sell everything that I own and give it to you. I am going to possess this land. My promise is not just to be around the land. But God said I'm going to possess the land. Can I speak over this church for just a moment? The promise from God for the first Pentecostal church of Anderson is not that we would just use this building. The promise isn't just that we would hold dinners in this building and we would have concerts and we would meet for church and that we would have banquets and dinners and parties. No, 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 no. The promise was we will possess this land. But God's looking for somebody who's willing to stand up and say, I realize that if we are going to possess the promise, if we're going to see backsliders come back into this building by the droves, if we're going to see miracles, signs, and wonders, if we're going to see promises start being fulfilled in our midst, it's going to take somebody who's willing to stand up and say, I don't care what it costs. I am convinced that this is the promise of God. And I am going to invest whatever I have to invest. But as Abram, as Abraham looked at the sons of Heth that day, he said, I've already settled it in my spirit. I already know of a surety that God said I'm going to possess this land. So you better just tell me what it's going to cost. Because I'm willing to invest in it. I know it's just a small little plot of land. I know it might not look like a whole lot to anybody else. I know it may not seem like a very significant thing. But I, you see, you have to understand that I have a promise from God. And I'm just believing that if I will invest in the promise, I'm going to see my family walk through the back doors. I just believe that if I will invest in the promise, I'm going to finally get the breakthrough that I've been asking for for years and years and years. I just believe, I have enough faith to believe that if I will just invest in the promise, that I'm going to possess it. All across this place, can we begin to lift our hands? I feel a reassuring spirit coming into this place.